I am grateful for uh, Sam's reminder this morning before we read Leviticus, just how important it is to listen to all of God's Word and to recognize the ways that it weighs down on us. And I think one of the things that um, stands out to me is the, the moral urgency that you feel as you read through Leviticus 19. And I guess somehow when we get to some of the New Testament texts like we're going to read today, we don't feel that urgency in the same way necessarily. And I remember having a conversation with a man who asked me to officiate at his wedding and I began just to explore a little bit of his life and ask him about how he thinks about the Bible. And he says, well, he doesn't really believe that the Bible is completely true, relevant, or significant for our lives. In fact, he just takes a little bit here and a little bit there and sort of works it together as he sees fit for himself in a way that just sort of works best for him. Now, this, of course, was a very sad conversation because it showed me this man had not grasped the mercy that God has shown to him. Nor had he understood that his life in its entirety was to be lived sacrificially under the Lord. New life in Christ is not partial. The Spirit does not get compartmentalized into some little box in our lives. Our entire life in its totality is impacted. We're going to be considering that again as we look through some of the pithy statements that Paul offers at the end of Romans chapter 12. And I want you to recognize this is not a list to pick and choose from. This is part of our entirety of our life being lived sacrificially in view of the mercies of God. And so let's pray and then I will read to us from Romans 12. Father, please help us to hear your words now. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully and help us all to be built up in truth. Expose areas where we need to grow, perhaps areas where we need to repent and be challenged. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work that transformation in our lives that you've called us to for the renewal of our minds. So bless us as we listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 12. I'll begin by reading 1 and 2 verses 1 and 2 to begin, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 9, where we're going to begin focusing our time today. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now please look down to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Paul gives us some characteristics that fill out our vision of what it means to be transformed in our lives, not conforming to the world as our minds are renewed. And these characteristics that he gives us in this section in particular, I think are, are given under a heading or a headline in verse 9. Now this could just be the preacher's trick. I really want to have some kind of organization to how I'm looking at this long list. And that's what I'm going to do today. So that's what I'm doing. I don't know if it's right, but that's what we're doing. This is what Paul says. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And we're going to look at all that we've been told in these verses under these three broad challenges. And so first, we're told, love like you mean it. Love like you really mean it. In verse 9, let love be genuine. In other words, don't fake it. We're not supposed to just say that we love people around us. We're supposed to show it. And that's how I think Paul begins to explain things in verse 10. As we're told, we're supposed to consider those in the Christian community around us like family. We're supposed to love them with a deep familial affection. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. We considered previously the ways that the gospel challenges us to be transformed by renewing the way that we think about people. And about our place in community and the place of others in community. They're no longer supposed to be guarded against a threat No longer are they a person to climb over in our pursuit up the ladder of success. They're no longer someone to be envied or pitied for that matter. No, now they are our brother or our sister to love. We belong to the same spiritual family built on the same spiritual foundation. We have God as our father and this means that we are free to show real honor to others. In fact, It should be our desire to lead the way in honoring others. We're supposed to outdo one another, in a sense, leading that way. Now, again, I I mentioned this last time, but this is a bit of a foreign concept to Australians. And again, I'm including myself in that lot. So if you're not Australian, I'm including you too today, okay? But just generally speaking, we'll call you Australian. I already mentioned that I think envy is a real problem for us. We don't like to see other people promoted above us. And so we're naturally suspicious of people who do well. If they do something excellent, we certainly will not tell them so. Because we don't want them to get a big head. So we might say, yeah, it's all right. It's okay. This is one of the ways that I think we can show Australia and Australian culture that we've been transformed. We don't have to 
deny somebody an encouragement, an affirmation, an honor when they do well. We are free to honor one another because Jesus has given us that freedom. In Christ, there's no room for competition with one another. Now, I was going to actually um, explore how I think this plays out in more mundane ways for us in our community, but I, I've actually decided I want to change tact for a, for a moment and, and do this extemporaneously, I think, on the fly here. There was a verse that I was not going to pay special attention to today, but I think it really does impact us as brothers. And as I was walking down, I thought we need to give some time. Verse 11 says this, Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. This whole, this whole culture of cutting tall poppies is a total denier of people that would want to be zealous. Because if I somehow show that I am zealous for the Lord, someone's just going to cut me down like I'm taking my faith too seriously. Brothers, we are cutting our legs out from each other. What if we got zealous about good works? I mean, what if we got zealous about serving the Lord? Let me ask you this. Why wouldn't you have zeal in serving the Lord? I know why. I'd be afraid somebody would just cut me down. They'd think, oh, he's a bit fanatical. He's a bit over the top. He's a little bit too excited. Oh, maybe he's trying to get ahead. Maybe he's trying to get ahead of me. Maybe I should find some other flaws in him to help me. Bring. You see what I mean? We, we are actually keeping ourselves down. But actually, we should be showing honor to those that are pursuing the Lord with zeal. And we should be pursuing the Lord with zeal without shame because it is the Lord who has been merciful to us. Now, I am rebuked by this, and I hope you are too. All right. Back to my script. When we have competition, all we do is communicate that we are conforming to the world. We are communicating, as I said last week, that we are embracing rivalry, we are embracing malice, envy, and the like. But actually, it's not representative of our new life in Christ. So the question is, how can we learn instead to feel appropriate with appropriately with people. And I think that's what Paul turns to next in this passage, beginning in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, I wonder which of those you'd find more difficult. Is it more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice or those to weep with those who weep? Now, personally, I find that it's easy at times to feel real sadness with people when they are grieved, when they've lost when they feel heavy or pain, I can naturally relate with them and say, yeah, I'm sorry, that's a rough time. However, sometimes, deep in my heart, I feel a little gladness at their loss. Because it's one more thing that they don't have that would otherwise help them to measure up against me. That is terrible. And nobody will ever know those thoughts. But in my deep insecurities, when somebody loses, I can sometimes think, hmm. The toughest challenge for me 
for the very same reason, is to celebrate with someone when they win. Their new life circumstance, a child, a house, a job promotion, a published article, a good mark on an essay, a new church placement, you name it. Those things can feel more like a threat to me than a joy. How about when someone's publicly recognized? Can we celebrate their recognition, join them in their delight, and offer sincere congratulations? Well, I suspect that the heart of the difficulty for me, as it may be for many of you, is that I'm constantly comparing. But this is a worldly problem. The answer to the problem isn't just to try harder. Instead, it's to go back to the foundation. You have been shown great mercy. We have been shown great mercy by our God. We have been welcomed by the same common foundation. That is, we stand together in Christ. That's our foundation. And we need to keep hearing this so that our minds are renewed, so that we can live transformed lives out of gospel truth. We've been welcomed by God into His family, even when we were sinners. There is nothing more to give you in this life than Christ. Now let this gospel truth motivate you and transform the way you think and live. I need to do the same. Let your love be without pretense. Don't just say it, mean it. Now, one of the most significant ways that we can show love outwardly to our brothers and sisters is through generosity and hospitality. If others are a threat to me and I look to find my status in something other than Jesus, then I'm going to withhold goods or time in order, in order to sort of protect my security. But if I'm secure in Christ, then I will freely give what I have in service to others. I mean, there will be nothing that I won't give if necessary. I will pour out my life sacrificially to others if necessary. I'll use my time, my home, my finances to support God's people in a way that shows genuine love for them as my family. And I can only do this because of the security that I have in knowing that my Father provides for all my needs. I'll also be freed, as verse 16 says, from thinking too highly of my position in the community and instead feel like my status isn't established by my entourage. It's not just the company that I keep that makes me significant. But instead, I'll be free to associate with the lowly, with the outcast, with the uncool, with the weird, with the people that have need. I can also include others and welcome them, even though they're different from me, significantly different, maybe ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically. Jesus levels our social structures, freeing us to not see ourselves as higher or lower than others, but instead making room for all 
And I'd like to challenge you, as I think this passage does, in challenging us to genuine love, to think about who you naturally associate with at church or maybe even in this college community. Who is it that you gravitate towards? Who is it that you connect in with? Do those relationships reflect natural ways or maybe conformity to the world, we could say? Or do they reflect the transformation that's come through gospel truth? Here's a way of testing it. Would you be just as likely to have your church friends outside the church in a non-Christian setting than you, as you would in a gospel community? If so, the bond that you share may actually be more like conformity to the world. We both have kids. We're both single. We like cycling. We're the same life stage. We both went to private school. It may look more like conformity to the world than it does gospel transformation. This is not to say that natural affinity isn't good or or helpful at points. I think it's a, a natural sociological thing. But if this is all that you're sharing within your church community, you are selling yourself terribly short. Being together in Christ offers so much more. And the second encouragement, and they get shorter, by the way. They're each shorter. The second encouragement that we have for our character is to keep evil in its place. We're supposed to love like we mean it and keep evil in its place. Paul tells us in verse 9, we should abhor what's evil. That's, I think, fairly obvious, isn't it? No one's going to say, love what's evil. But I suspect that the application may surprise us. Abhorrence of evil means not returning evil for evil. In other words, we don't retaliate against evil with the same evil that we've been shown. Instead, we are free. We are free to return goodness and blessing to those who've persecuted us. We don't need to curse, and we don't curse because we remember that we were once just like them who are against us now. We were once trapped in our sin, just as they are now. We were once dead and far off from God. We were hostile in mind. We were lost and without hope, fighting with the world because we were trapped in our sin and desperate for security. But now, now we're in Jesus. And as our minds are renewed, we live transformed lives meaning we don't need to retaliate kind for kind, demonstrating conformity to the world. The world which would say, well, they hurt me. They deserve to get hurt back. They cheated on me, so I can cheat on them. They persecute me for my faith, so I can call down curses on them from God. The problem is, we're just perpetuating the problem in our response. Nasty gets returned with nasty. It doesn't mean that the evil is to be excused. But rather, we show confidence that justice doesn't need to be taken into our own hands. We have a great assurance that ultimate justice will come. So for now, we can pray for the Lord to turn our enemies to him. It's a very difficult thing, especially if we've been deeply hurt by somebody. 
if we've been oppressed. But this is what Jesus modeled to us, isn't it? Even in his dying breaths where he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I do think it's important to note here that we're not charged to, even though we're, we're charged to bless and not curse those who persecute us, it's not saying that we should get walked on by bullies or persecutors. And there's nothing in this statement that I think encourages us to remain in or even to pursue harm's way. I think it's very reasonable that Christians seek safety. But what is being said is that Christians should not be surprised by antagonism. And when it comes, they should not respond with a fight. We are free instead to respond by seeking peace in verse 18. And this is possible only because God has promised to us that he is our avenger in verse 19. And this brings us to the final thing that we're encouraged to consider for our character. We're told to hold on to what is good, to cling fast to it. Love like you mean it. Keep evil in its place and hold on to what's good. So in view of God's mercy, our new life now, and the hope of the future, we cling fast. Hold on tight to good, even in the face of evil. So when evil is presented to us by our enemy, we can respond with kindness and goodness and recognize that this is not natural. It is not natural. But it happens as God's Spirit works and renews us. I'm not sure if you've ever tried this sort of interaction, but when an enemy rises up against you fiercely, instead of matching that intensity, you just show kindness. It's, it's really interesting how it just lets the wind out of their sails. It's like it just sucks the air out of the room. I was once driving a boat with uh, Simon Gillum and Paul Grimmond and Pete Orr. I don't know if I was trying to impress them, but I, I pulled in front of another speedboat and cut across them in the harbor. Um, the, the guy that I, I cut in front of um, was not happy. And as he flew by me, he yelled some things that I won't repeat in this room. Um, and after he went past us, about 10 minutes later, he came full speed back at my boat, now with another guy on his boat, and just cuts out right at the last minute and swerves. And he says, all right, who was the idiot driving the boat a minute ago? He's challenging us. He was expecting a fight or a standoff. And uh, I just said, yeah, I was. I'm that, I'm that idiot. Um, <laughs> he told me his thoughts about my driving. And um, I could have just replied, who's the real idiot here? Because I had my own thoughts about that. But instead, I do not know why. Um, I just said... Um, I'm really sorry, man. You know, I'm really sorry. That was my mistake, and I apologize. I'll, I'll make sure I'm, I'm different next time. Now, this is not a story about my greatness. This is actually quite a shock to me, because normally I would have just puffed my chest out and given him the what for. I really don't know what happened. Maybe it was the account accountability of uh, <laughs> senior Christian brothers around me. But you should have seen the look on this guy's face. He came, you know, with extra muscle. There's only two of them, though, and I had plenty of muscle on my back. <laughs> but you should have seen the disappointment. Like, he was angry, and then when I apologized, and he realized I was being sincere, he just, 
Oh. Well, let's, uh, let's all do better next time. Yeah, great, man, great. <laughs> oh. He just left. I mean, he left kind of really, I don't know. He just thought, what was he? I think he expected one thing and got something else. Maybe you realize he'd acted the fool. Now, I suspect this may be what Paul means by the strange motivation that by doing so, you'll keep burning coals on your enemy's head. That would be a strange thing as we show kindness to sort of secretly wish our enemies harm. I think what he means is that we're going to frustrate our enemies. We're going to frustrate the evil that they're perpetrating. Not frustrate them where they're just grumpier and angrier, necessarily, but actually we're going to stop that evil. It's going to seize up. It's not going to be able to advance anymore. This is why Paul gives us the final challenge. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can entrust ourselves to God's will, giving approval of it as he's encouraged us in the earlier verses, when our minds have been renewed. And that transformation that the gospel brings liberates us from the need to fight, the need to avenge, the need to return bad words with bad words, violence with violence, and instead to express that we all have a deep and relevant faith in God. One that's marked out significant transformation in our life. Now, as we conclude this little study in Romans 12, it's really important to recognize that the way that Paul has encouraged us to live is sacrificial. We present our bodies, that is our whole lives, as a sacrifice to God. And sacrificial living is not necessarily preferential living or comfortable living or easy living. It's costly. But it's a cost we can pay because the greatest cost has already been paid for us. Elsewhere, Paul encourages the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That's in view of the mercies of God. The great price that He has paid in giving us His Son to bring us new life by His Spirit, that we can live sacrificially under the glory of God. So in view of these mercies, brothers, I hope today you're encouraged to love like you mean it, to keep evil in its place, and to hold on to what is good. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your love and justice would shape our social engagement. That in view of the gospel, we would really love like we mean it. That we would abhor evil and hold on to what is good. That this kind of transformation would mark out our lives with one another especially, but also with our engagement with the wider world. That you would keep us from the temptation of running back to old ways, conforming to the world, forgetting what it means to have been shown mercy by you. And instead, Lord, that you would really renew us, renew our minds so that we can live transformed lives. And I pray, Lord, maybe 
more than anything today, that you would help us to be eager, zealous to do what you've called us to, to serve you, our great God and King. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.